Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I am your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm here with Dr. Andrew Chappelle. I think much of our audience will know who Andrew is. Uh, many of them will probably have written, uh, written, read a lot of his work. Um, Andrew himself, to give him a brief introduction for those of you who aren't aware, is a sports nutritionist. He is a DFAC pro natural bodybuilder. Absolutely jacked, amazing shape. We're just talking about kind of what he's doing right now. Um, I'm going to big him up. He also has a PhD from the Rowett Institute of Nutrition and Health and is a doctor of nutrition. He also holds a BSc honors degree in sport and exercise science and an MSc in human nutrition and metabolism. So he is an academic bodybuilder, which is going to probably be the title of this podcast. And I know for our listeners, I mean, they're all going to be people who are very, very much looking for that academic side. And many of them are aspirational or current bodybuilders. So you are someone, Andrew, I think myself included, will people look up to. Um, and I think something I'd love to hear about, and I think our audience would love to hear about is kind of your background as a bodybuilder, kind of where you started to where you are now. Um, I think that would be super interesting. All right. Okay. Thank you very much for that glowing uh, introduction, Steve. Um, thanks very much. Really, really appreciate it. So, I mean, there's a lot there, isn't there? Uh, where do you even get started on that? Your background as a bodybuilder um, and even the, the academic journey that I've been down to go all the way from doing a uh, BSc in sports science all the way to the, the PhD at the Rowett Institute. So, I mean, I was bodybuilding I've been bodybuilding probably longer than a lot of you guys have actually been been training, actually. I did my first bodybuilding contest in 2006, right? So, I mean, we're, we're going right back to the Scottish Championships, BMBF, British Natural Bodybuilding. Way back then, when I did the uh, did my first show, I was 19-year-old. And, I mean, anyone that's into bodybuilding will know that you don't choose bodybuilding, it kind of chooses you. Right. It's it's one of those sort of things that you just kind of you just kind of fall into, yeah. You, no one ever sort of I think ever plans to sort of do one until one day some guy in the gym says uh, you should think about doing a bodybuilding show. And you're like, what? You're talking to me? <laughs> so yeah, way back in two thousand and and six, and Joe, I loved um, like most people that are from this background, health and fitness, and um, just exercising, cardio, uh, lifting weights, uh, just being in shape, healthy eating, and how that makes you feel sort of inside and, and on the outside as well. So I started out doing a HNC and a HND and health, fitness, and exercise to give myself the tools to really equip myself for the professional that I intended to go into, which was personal training. And because, I mean, it was my hobby as well. I mean, I loved it. I'm, I'm, I was passionate about it at the time. And I always sort of thought, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I need to at least look the part, yeah? Right. And then I, so I was listening weights for that because I enjoyed it. I mean, strength training is the thing that I, I really love doing more more than anything. I do do bodybuilding, but strongman and powerlifting as well because you get to do a lot of that sort of real fun stuff as well. But yeah, I started out with uh, with that, started out um, doing that, learning about uh, different training techniques, different methods of, uh, of dieting. And then I started doing the bodybuilding. I decided, okay, well, I'm going to do well at this bodybuilding, then you you need to know quite a bit about human physiology. You need to understand nutrition, methods, et cetera, because that's sort of classic saying, the more you know, the more you grow. And um, it, it certainly has lots of, uh, there's lots of truth in that, lots of application in bodybuilding. So 2006 was the first one. I don't know if I ever intended to do any more shows than the first show. 
Right. But <laughs> I did the first one. Um, I remember getting up on stage, the, being backstage actually first and foremost, and I was like, I was nervous as hell. I was like, Jesus Christ, I've got to do a, got to do a bodybuilding show. And I suppose I was all, I've always been a bit of an extrovert, but I mean, there's still something daunting about getting up on stage and a pair of posing trunks in yep. front of an audience. I mean, come on, you're half naked for Christ's sake. So doing that, being nervous as hell. And But when I got up on stage, I was like, wow, this is amazing. I absolutely loved it. Like I just got such a total buzz as a performer and just the the showcasing of all your fruits of your labor that you've you've delved into in, in the gym. So I just, I loved it. And then from there, qualified for the British finals, second at the, the British in the junior class in the first year. And then after that, I obviously knew that I had some sort of aptitude for this. And I thought, well, I'll just let's just see how far I could take this. I remember at the time it was, if you won the finals, there would be the golden ticket to go to the, the world championship. Oh, wow, and yeah. yeah, I mean, a big deal. Like, and it was like, you're going to go to New York or I don't know, um, Greece or Las Vegas or something like that. And for a young guy who's coming from like low socioeconomic status, you've never been anywhere. It's yeah. like, wow, you could use bodybuilding to go around the world and do this stuff and be like your heroes in the magazine. And just, I was hooked. Yeah. And that was that. So that was my, that's my bodybuilding journey. That's, 2006, I did the juniors every year um, up until 2009. I ended up, um, I won the British twice, I remember, as a junior. Uh, and then I took a, a, a competing world championships as well in 2007. And then after that, I took some time out in 2009, focusing on studying at the same sort of time. So I did my BSc in sport and exercise science. Um, after that, I went on, I started doing my master's, and then I didn't get back up on stage again until I was a mister, 2012, I think it was. And we were talking about this just off the, just off earlier, actually. We were saying, okay, I was a middleweight then, so yeah. the transition from being like a junior to a full-blown mister competitor, I mean, it's, it's daunting because you're going up against men. Yeah. And really, th this sport this sport really favors the older guy. It really does. It just it takes that long to build the muscle tissue that it's not like other sports which favor the younger man, which mm -hmm. are based on strength and power. You really you need to have the years in the gym training to to get by. And so that that was a bit daunting, but I, I did pretty well. First year I was um, middleweight. I won the British finals as a as a middleweight. It took me three years after that until 2014 of doing the heavyweights and the heavyweights again of just missing out on my pro card. And then I eventually won the pro card. And then competed in my first Worlds 2014 and then up to 2017 is where I competed again as a pro. So all in, Steve, I think I've done about 25 bodybuilding shows. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, about that many. Yeah, I've, I've done a lot. Seven Mr. Scotlands, five British title wins, five world titles, uh, world com competitions, sorry, and then three pro shows. And never outside the top three in any show. So... I've done all right. That's really good. It's, fairly, yeah. it's a fairly good competitive record, I would say. I would, I would challenge any amateur bodybuilder that's a natural to best that. I, I think you're you're struggling. So so there you go. Is that a fairly good overview? I kind of went on a bit. No, no, no. Really I've done good. a lot now I think about it. it. It gives people a really nice insight into what got you into the sport and what kept you there. And I, I thought it was interesting to hear. Passion. Well, yeah, 100%. I think you have to be. If you're going to be... Yeah. I mean, bodybuilders are crazy taking themselves to oh, stage yeah. leanness. So you must love it to, yeah, to go there continuously. Like you were competing oh, yeah. 
many years after a year. Is there anything you changed from that experience or did it kind of build um, you to where you are? Oh, no, it, it definitely it definitely built me to to where, where I am. I mean, on that point you just raised there about bodybuilding is such an extreme sport. There's so much going on. So just as an academic pursuit, I mean, I can easily make a career of this stuff studying it for the next 20 years, focusing on a single element like the psychology of the competition diet or right. the training prep and all that, easily just on that. So just from that sort of point of view, it's it's a fascinating aspect and it certainly fueled my academic ambitions to, to go down route, that route. But um, things have changed. Do I, I, you know what? I, I wouldn't change anything because I learned so much. I, I did so many different types of diets. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with this expression. I'm sure somebody's brought this up in the past, but they, they always say like, an expert is someone that's made every mistake that you can possibly right. make. So like my first diet, Scott, I literally went super high protein. Um, <laughs> Christ knows there's even any carbohydrates in my diet and low fat. And do you know what? Those diets will either make you or break you. Yeah. They are hard as hell, right? See, once you've done diets like that, <laughs> everything's a cakewalk, right? Yeah. <laughs> Everything's 100%. a cakewalk. So you can have total sort of empathy for people that are really struggling on these really harsh diets because you know how moody you can potentially get yeah. and you know what the consequences of uh, of dieting on uh, something like that. He says, as I've got my Cadbury's cream egg cup, <laughs> <laughs> you can just see uh, coming up there. So no, I wouldn't change those things. Um because it was it's good to try those things. Certainly you can you've got experience for that. You know why it works. You know that these different dietary strategies do work. Um I've had a lot of aches, pains, niggles, injuries. So it's that sort of Dorian Yates, not that I compare myself to him, one of the greatest of all time, but dichotomy. So he got himself to where he was with his training style. Right. Even though he picked up those injuries on the way. So would he have been that absolute freak of nature and 1992 if you hadn't done that sort of stuff would he have got all the six olympia titles maybe but maybe maybe not <laughs> maybe not as well so i certainly learned from it uh, from those sort of things uh, as well i probably train a lot smarter these days though based on um based on previous experience i've often had this conversation though with uh, one of my good friends dave i always sort of say do you know what if your younger self met your older self right would your younger self be disappointed in your older self and be like, look, man, what's <laughs> happened to your training? What what happened to this crazy hardcore animal that used to do 25 sets, drop sets, every sort of set? What, where is that guy? And I'd probably tell my younger set, look, you don't always have to do that sort of stuff. But you you definitely, you learn by doing in a lot of cases. So, I mean, this is an interesting point, actually. I mean, you, you asked me before this podcast. Um, I'm sorry if I'm going too fast, by the way. This is just my... Scottish That's accent it. coming through through the uh, the podcast. So, I mean, have you have you ever heard of um, Club's Theory of Learning? Have you ever come across this? I haven't heard of that. No. Okay. When so, you explain uh, it, it works, I might. Yeah, sure. There's sort of four elements to it. Okay. So you've got this um, this idea that you've got um, abstract thinking about a process. So we sort of this is where we we go away. We read the textbook, so this would be you or I looking at the um, the principles that we're going to apply and put into the practice. Practice. You've got the um, implementing the abstract 
training process that you've actually thought about the in the textbook analogy. And then from there, you've got the reflection on how effective the abstract process and the training principle actually was. So it's a continuous sort of cycle, and we call this experiential learning. Now, there's a vital fourth step that I forgot about there, but the three-step concept, which is now Andrew's cycle of uh, learning, <laughs> is, is good enough. So, like, definitely just the, the learning by doing is yeah. is absolutely invaluable. And um, like I say, you you asked me about the, the idea of being a professional bodybuilder and the idea of uh, of being an academic scientist yeah. as well. So, so there is, there's definitely value in that experiential learning process that we, the going through that. Um, and then this, there's this other notion about, okay, well, as a scientist and a professional bodybuilder, you want to do things, which you want to train smart, as I've sort of alluded to already. So it comes down to being evidence-based. Now, that term evidence-based is kind of loaded because, I mean, what do we mean by evidence-based? Mm-hmm. And is, does evidence-based mean going away, sitting down, working something out, reading it, uh, going for a process and then trying it out in the gym. And then if you don't get results, you change it the next time. Um, or you do get a result and you stick with that and then you track your progress. Is that being evidence-based? Because that would probably certainly fit one definition of evidence-based. Right. And then the other definition of being evidence-based would be trying to adhere to principles and practices that you get from academic journals and, and things of you like. So taking that abstract conceptualization process now both have a place yeah. uh, i think in, a, in the in the grand story and what i would say for anyone that's listening to this podcast listening to this podcast is you definitely sometimes need to step outside the box and just experiment a little and uh, and try things out because certainly with going through an academic journey you, you probably start to be much more questioning um the value of some of this academic research and how much application it really has yeah. in the practical settings to uh, to your physique in the, in the real world. Does that make sense? I don't no, know. No, it, com- it completely does. And uh, evidence based, I think a lot of people wrongly, sure. I think, kind of assume evidence based just means like sitting on pub- PubMed and reading articles and, yeah, and that's what yeah. it is. But like you rightly said, it's the anecdote is part yeah, of that. Yeah. And when we're talking about bodybuilding, there's not that many kind of research papers no. on bodybuilders particularly. No. So it's difficult to really draw too much from those. Yeah, well, I think, you know what, that's, you've used your perfect podcast host skills there <laughs> to segue, I think, into uh, into a good topic. So, I mean, that's, that's what I guess I'm trying to do with my research. Yep. So most recently I put out a publication on peaking strategies of, uh, of natural bodybuilders mm-hmm. Um, and another one on the strategies of high-level bodybuilders and what is it that the successful ones do compared to the the less successful ones? Because the the recommendations that we have for bodybuilding just now um, are largely based around other sports and yeah. really extrapolations from studies not necessarily performed on bodybuilding populations. And the reason we can't do studies really on bodybuilders i mean are because quite frankly they're, they're really difficult to do so they're, they're hard to recruit the populations unless you actually know these sort of people um and then to do any sort of study where you sort of want to work out well should we diet on higher protein or less protein it's really difficult to set that up because there's there's so many variables that you want to 
implement into a, a free living individual setting. And I mean, what's your what's your final outcome? Is your final outcome what is lean body mass at the the end of the, the competition period, or is it that they win the competition or not? Because ultimately it's the best package that wins. And yeah. sometimes the best package might be one which is two percent lower in body fat, but also one percent lower in lean body mass. Or maybe it's one which is two percent higher in body fat, but maybe it's got one percent higher lean body mass. And so it's it's kind of it's kind of complicated, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's obviously value in things like shooting for lean body mass. So I guess um, what we're trying to do is well, if you look at strategies which successful people are doing, there's maybe some sort of value in sort of following some of these sort of strategies. I think is um is what we're trying to do, and then we can probably derive some sort of evidence-based recommendations based around those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, that makes sense? yeah, it's seeing where, I guess, like the, what evidence-based practice is, is you, yeah. you see kind of what the research is saying, you practice it, yeah. see kind of what your anecdotal mm-hmm. experience has been, yeah. what you're kind of looking at with these bodybuilders mm-hmm. who have had success is kind of where do yeah. the kind of the, the, where do they cross over? Where's kind of yeah. what the science is telling us is what's kind of the right thing to do and sure. what's what they're actually doing that's working and kind of where these crossover might be something that is like, hmm, yeah. this could potentially be something to think about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, do you know what? It has to be a collaborative effort between academia and between the actual athletes, the practitioners, the coaches themselves. So what successful people are doing or what a large majority of people are doing inevitably the, the scientists they'll look at that and they'll say okay well that's a really interesting technique it looks like bodybuilders are they're eating six meals per day is there some value in that mm-hmm. and then they go away and you study it and it finds yeah. it and you find out okay well maybe it doesn't preserve lean body mass better than any other strategy might if you get a large enough cohort but maybe it's because they're on low calories and there's a greater satiation effect and that helps them adhere to the diet a little bit more so so People that sort of box things off and sort of say, well, have you got an academic study for that? Can you actually prove that? I mean, that that for me gets a little bit sort of frustrating sometimes. I'm saying, well, do you know what? You don't always sort of need an academic study to support what sometimes seems like common sense or yeah. at least not inconceivable reasoning sometimes. Yeah. And I think some of the things I... Uh, the two papers you talked about, kind of the yeah, sure. nutritional strategies of high-level bodybuilders... Um, and also kind of the the peaking process that a lot yeah, of bodybuilders sure. take we'll have those linked below but i'd love to yeah. kind of dig into where sure. kind of what are we seeing of the, the trends of the people who sure. and what well first of all for the nutritional strategies of high level bodybuilders yeah. kind of what you are basing on kind of who was kind of having the success and who wasn't yeah, just because sure. obviously you talked about the lean body sure. mass maybe being a potential other marker or potential superior yeah. one um, and then any kind of yeah things you found kind of were common traits of kind of the people yeah. who are doing better. Okay, so um, just to give your, your readers a little bit of context here, so what we've done is we went out to the British Natural Bodybuilding Federation finals, which is probably, I would say, the toughest amateur bodybuilding contest in the world. Really, really tough. Like, these guys are the best. They've got to come through qualifying structure to, to get to the finals, and then um, to win your class... You've got to be the best of the best of those guys. And then if you win your class and you're, you get to go through to the overall and then you get your pro card, yeah, if you win that. Okay, so they got about one pro card a year, right? So that's probably the toughest pro card that you're going to get 
anywhere in the world for a natural bodybuilding organization. It's really, really difficult. Believe me, I, I had three shots at trying to get one of those things and <laughs> finally on the, the third attempt getting them. And the guys that when they finally, um, they've managed to do that, get the pro card, they, they go into the pro ranks and do you know what? They are legit. They are pro level athletes that can hang top three, top five at the DFAC worlds, WMBF worlds, etc. They're They're that good. Yeah. Also, this competition is the most comprehensively drug-tested competition you're probably going to find anywhere as well. So they do polygraph testing to ensure people that are, um, well, ensure natural status. And what's quite nice or not nice about the paper is that one of our participants, if you read it, didn't mm-hmm. get to compete for failing the drug test. So, And it turns out they did uh, take something within that uh, the seven-year ban period. Anyway, plus they drug test all the competition winners they um, do random testing. So everyone that's got to the finals has been drug tested at a high proportion. It's WADA, WADA testing as well and WADA code, right? So these people are the best. And what we decided to do, we say, okay, well, what is it that the best people are doing? And we said, right, if you place in the top five, then that's success, yeah? And if you don't place in the top five, well, we'll just say that you are did not place, yeah? You're not successful, yeah? Even though they can look fantastic. And you know what? People that don't place... Some of them look unbelievable still. So we're, we just use these as a, an arbitrary cutoff for uh, for our competition. So a few things I sort of think in terms of take-home points. So I wrote, I've got some notes here just to remind myself because it was a while ago since I uh, since I wrote this paper. You think this sort of stuff would stick with you, but I guess I'm getting old. <laughs> You're not using all the practices from them then, hey? <laughs> <laughs> well, come on. It's not your diet. <laughs> come here, break, man. <laughs> no, I, I am. I am. So some key things, right? So first off, at that level, right, if you want to be successful, you're talking bodybuilding actual training. You're looking at around about 14 years of training is what you're looking at all in. The most successful amateurs, uh, less successful ones, maybe about 9, 10 years. Female competitors, you're talking 10 years of training. Less successful ones, less than that, okay? So training history, clearly, as I was saying right at the start of the podcast, means that you can accrue more muscle mass, yeah? Other nice little details, average successful bodybuilders been training for, sorry, doing bodybuilding contests for four years, yeah? Less successful ones have only been doing it for two years. So just having the time on stage, practicing your craft of bodybuilding, the presentation, putting on the tan, getting over the jitters, doing the contest day stuff, certainly has value, right? So I started off telling you these things because I'm not going to pretend like these things don't matter yeah. because they definitely do. They definitely do um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to bodybuilding. And I think it's, it's important to be realistic as well so people can get a sort of handle on how long it maybe sort of takes. Um, in terms of preparing your body for competition, you're looking at around about 24 weeks for a contest diet. Um, and people on average, you're looking about 12% is how much body weight they're yep. losing. So you can maybe translate that into yourself for some sort of body fat percentage, but it's about 12%. Women slightly higher, uh, but about 14, 15%, but 12%. And then that works out around about half a percent of body fat per week. Sorry, body weight loss yep. per week is what you're trying to lose. Yeah. And we know from studies and weight loss populations that if you lose weight slow, then you retain muscle mass better than as if you lose weight fast. So if you yeah. take a 12-week diet versus a 24-week diet, 
same amount of weight loss. If you look at fat-free mass or lean body mass, then the people that are doing it slow have got higher amounts of muscle mass at the end, yeah? So really, really important factor. You need to uh, need to consider when it comes to the bodybuilding diet. If you're in better shape, you know what? You can you can get away with a shorter diet. Um, but if you really want to preserve as much muscle mass, then again, it's you're going to want to be a slower sort of weight loss period. Practically, for the first time dieter, if I say to you, right, we're doing 24 weeks, maybe that doesn't work, right? Because you've never dieted before. Maybe you're a sort of person that can only hack a 16-week diet and it's got to be a more severe weight loss. We have to consider these sort of things as well. And this is where the art of coaching really comes in, is identifying these sort of things. Because I don't believe in paint-by-numbers bodybuilding at all, because you have to you have to consider these sort of things. So key things to start with. In terms of the nutrient breakdown, though, what we've seen in our cohorts is that our successful competitors, the ones that place, they consume around about five grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight at the start of their contest prep. And by the end of their contest prep, they're still consuming around about five grams per kilogram of body weight, right? Now, we scale it like that so that you can work that out for yourself and your own sort of body size. Mm-hmm. So this is why we express it this way. Now, it put that into sort of grams because everyone likes to work in grams. Um, that works out. I've got it written right down here. That's about 430 to around about 270 across the course, depending on your uh, your overall yeah. body size. Now, the, the people that unfortunately are not as successful, you're looking at a much lower carbohydrate intake, almost like a gram less, yeah? So around about, say, 3.9, 3.7, yeah? And if you translate that into a 75-kilogram bodybuilder or a 100-kilogram bodybuilder, that can equate to around about 75 to 100 grams of carbohydrates or 400 calories less in the diet over the course of the diet. And that's the big deal as well, yeah? Because if you've got more energy coming in, then you've got the potential to train a little bit harder, which leads to potentially better muscle preservation, particularly if that energy is coming from carbohydrates, so that, and we know carbohydrates are main fuel source for bodybuilding type exercise, so because we accumulate lactic acid, but also maybe better dietary adherence, maybe better adherence to doing the cardiovascular exercise because you're always going to burn a little bit of carbohydrate when you're doing that, but also something that we rarely see discussed in the literature, also that sort of posing practice that you do. Because if you do... 20 to 30 minutes of isometric contractions, you can significantly deplete your muscle glycogen levels. And when your muscle glycogen levels are depleted, then what happens is your body starts to go into gluconeogenesis and we start to catabolize muscle tissue to build, make the carbohydrates we need to maintain our body's blood sugar levels and maybe to, to fuel our muscles as well, potentially. Sorry if I went too fast there. Is, is that all okay? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think the, I love the, the beginning talking about the time investment before, like the yeah. years that they've kind of put in yeah. to get to where they are, the experience sure. they've got. Yeah. And then again, the time, the, just reinforcing the element of time in that people yeah. who are successful have put in the time to get to stage. I don't know yeah. if it was a good time to talk about, if, if anyone, I don't know if you looked into it actually, if people were doing any kind of intermittent, kind of diet breaks or uh, refeed strategies. I don't ah, know if okay, you looked yeah. at that. Yeah, we, we've looked at it. 
it's very difficult to to analyze this sort of thing with uh, with the methods that we actually used. I mean, we, we could have done interviews, but again, then you reduce the amount of people that you get in the study. I mean, we've got 51 people in this study, which after the study that we've done on peak week strategies, I think is the third biggest bodybuilding cohort study ever. Yeah. And when you 51 doesn't sound like a lot, but that's mm. that's actually quite a lot for this. We did ask simple questions. We said, okay, did you utilize cheat meal strategies? Right. Did you utilize refeed strategies um throughout the contest dieting period? And it's just a simple binary yes or no. Yeah. And what we see is that um around about 40% of the athletes that didn't place were quite happy to utilize a cheat meal strategy. Okay. The people that placed, I think I've got it written here, were around about 20% of the athletes were likely to use a cheat meal strategy. So cheat meals were a strategy that people utilized. Maybe people that were less successful utilized the cheat meal strategy and that meant that they were less successful. I don't think we can narrow it right down to that yeah. variable, but if we look at the overall calorie intake of the people who were not as successful, we note that calories per kilo body weight, it's much less. So people that are successful, you're looking at about 38 kilocalories per kilogram of body weight. Uh, people that are less successful, around about 32 kilocalories um, per kilogram of body weight. So maybe because they're on that lower calorie intake for the duration of diet, they then use the cheat meal to bump up the, right. the calories a little bit and that potentially helps them in terms of maintaining a greater calorie load or what's the term we like to use. I mean, the, the idea is that you boost your metabolism a little bit and you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into that because yeah. I don't study cheat meals. But that's that's the notion, I guess, from there. And that, that would explain why more of them maybe use that sort of strategy anyway. I would always sort of say that if you can hack it, then I would rather maintain a higher calorie, calorie load across yeah, the training yeah. days just to maintain that high training performance because performance is, for me, the, the most important thing. But then this is where the, the beauty of coaching comes in yeah. because not everyone can do that. So it's not black or white. I'm not going to say, no, don't do cheat meals because some people, yeah, will work a treat. Um, some people will have to diet them slightly differently in terms of prepping them for, for competition. So, yeah, some people do use cheat meals. Um, we have got another study, which we're doing just now, on strategies of pros versus amateurs, cool. um, which we're writing on just now. So your viewers will know Eric Kelms, so they're yeah. just a name drop. Um <laughs> So we're writing that up with uh, with him just now. Um, so we'll hopefully have some more data on cheat meals and things like that that will, will come out from there. But I, I suspect that, just anecdotally, pros don't tend to be doing cheat meals as much as uh, as amateur competitors. Right. So there's a few things in there that we've uh, we've just discussed. So cheat meals, yeah, more successful people maybe don't do it as much. Less successful people maybe do it more. It's maybe got more to do with the um, calorie intake overall and that the more successful people are probably well they are they're eating more calories throughout the, the diet yeah in terms of other things um protein intake is exactly what you'd expect yeah exactly what you'd expect so people are consuming around about 2.7 all the way up to 3.3 grams per kilogram of body weight there's not much difference between people that place and don't place bodybuilders seem to understand protein they yeah. know that 
and that might be marketing for years of protein shakes and stuff but or just everyone seems to know you, you need to have a little bit more protein in in your diet there's probably a discussion that we can have about does it need to be as high as that right because you can maybe conceivably go maybe 2.5 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight and then take the calories that are in the protein and put them elsewhere mm-hmm. and then maybe, maybe you've got more fats for energy and maybe you've got more um carbohydrates for energy so you could maybe do something like that but bodybuilders seem to place macronutrients in a hierarchy so protein's always highest that always sets the top of the pyramid don't nobody has anything blasphemy or anything like that to say about uh protein and then there's a there's always a battle between okay do you go carbohydrates or uh or fats mm-hmm. and if you're a keto guy then carbs are your enemy and if you're a high carb guy then don't be so ridiculous to go keto but certainly in, in these bodybuilders they seem to go protein first yep. fats for fueling the training that they do and then despite recommendations on fat from evidence-based bodybuilding practices these bodybuilders go really super low fat so we're talking around about 10 percent wow yeah really low so do you know what? I would actually say if there's any keen bodybuilding researchers out there or uh, enthusiasts who are looking for a master's project or something like that to do in the future, I think fat is maybe the next sort of frontier in terms of working out how much fat you can get away with having in your diet so that we don't necessarily suppress hormonal function. Because you know what? You, you actually don't have a dietary requirement for saturated fat. Mm-hmm. Your body can make that stuff all day long, and it can make it from carbohydrate if, if need be. What we really need is, um, is essential fatty acids. And the the studies that sort of look at, okay, low-fat versus high-fat diets and a calorie deficit, it's really difficult to disentangle that sort of relationship in terms of is it the calorie deficit mm-hmm. or is it a higher low-fat uh, intake that's causing the suppression of things like testosterone and uh, an IGF-1, and it's just testosterone reduction inevitable anyway, and yeah. there's not much we can uh, we can do about that. So I think that's uh, the next frontier because when you start to get into that research, you start to realize that you know, it's a bit flaky. Mm-hmm. There's it's not as well supported as uh, as you think it might be. So that's that's where I would I would go in terms of that. So yeah, th- there's those are all the major points. I think I've talked about protein there. I've talked about carbohydrate. That's what people always want to know about. They want to know about. Um, fats and they want to know about energy so we've covered them and i think did i give you a good enough explanation of what i think is maybe kind of going on in terms of why they're maybe doing better or not doing better i guess i can somewhat try and like summarize it say if yeah what, do you know what that would be great if you could say it back to me then i'll yep. know that other people might have it so obviously generic like across the board higher protein is kind of just across the board everyone seems to have that kind of methodology yep. across their the guys yeah. who are doing kind of more successfully are having potentially higher carbohydrates, yeah. overall higher calorie intake, yeah. and utilizing a low fat approach versus other people just yeah. having lower calories generally and yeah. therefore lower carbohydrates. Yeah. Yeah. And something I wonder with that is I don't know if there's anything to do with potentially they're in like a same percentage wise calorie deficit, but the people who do are more successful can just diet on more calories. Or they have more lean body mass because they've been training for longer. I don't know if there's anything along those lines. Do you know what? They, those are great questions. Absolutely. And they're the sort of questions that you should be asking if you're if you're reading over these sort of things. I mean, in this sort of study, we're, we're asking people, okay, what's your weight? What is your height? We take their BMI. 
uh, we take their NBMI and what we see based on those sort of things that the people that are successful and the people that are less successful, there's not a statistical difference between those sort of two things. So they're exactly the same, yeah? What we don't measure though is, okay, well, what's your body fat percentage? Right. Yeah. Because we, we, it's self-reported, yeah? And then with the best will in the world that we can't actually say that these people have actually got higher and lower body fat percentages because we just we just can't. Um, mm-hmm. So we don't know at the end of it, as you say, did they have more lean body mass and that just allowed them to uh, to to diet on more calories? Certainly in the paper that I'm writing just now um, about pros versus amateurs, there is a difference in the BMI between the uh, the pros and amateurs. The pros are as you would guess, have got more muscle mass mm-hmm. and that probably allows them to uh, to diet on more calories. As, uh, as Eric says to me, he's like, nah, man, I think it's just that the pros are jacked. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's probably just it. So they can maybe, they can maybe eat a little bit more and, is it because, and that's why, because they've got more muscle mass. So no, good questions. I mean, there was an interesting aside that I put into that paper on self-reported body fat percentages because you'll be familiar with this notion of the fat-free mass index right. that no no natural bodybuilder could possibly have a fat-free mass index of greater than uh, of 25. Right, yeah. That was the notion. Did you read that section? Did you um, see that stuff? I ha- yeah, that's like, a, the listeners will be aware of that without reading, yeah. I think, even. It's like a big, yeah. like the natty witch hunt was anyone yeah, above yeah, this number. Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. I think Ming's is about twenty five point four or something like that. I'm I'm definitely getting burned at the stake somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I put it in the paper just to sort of show how ridiculous this sort of notion is because right. that original research is like it's based on like okay, well we're just going to guess what these body fat percentages are of these Mister America competitors yeah. back pre the steroid era when. <laughs> So I'm just like, okay, well, if that's good enough, then how about I just ask the bodybuilders what their body fat percentage is, just estimate it, and then just say, well, these people have got a body fat percentage in that greater than than 25, some of them. So maybe maybe that's proof that you can be over 25 and 90. Just as an interesting aside, though, uh, joking aside, I've had guys in my lab down uh, down in Sheffield for the last six months, and I asked them some questions. I said, okay, What's your body fat? What do you think your body fat percentage is? Uh, and then I measured them in terms of their body fat percentage. And then I looked at the difference between what they guessed it was and what the actual difference and what the actual um, body fat was to see what the difference is. Now, from the literature, right, that's what you see, right? If you show people silhouettes of themselves or if you ask them to estimate what their body fat percentage is or if they're over underweight, then women are absolutely terrible at this, right? Mm-hmm. What they do is they tend to think they're way fatter than they actually yeah. are, right? Which probably fits some sort of chauvinist cliche sort of jokes. Um, but guys, on the other hand, we're just as bad, right? So we, we've, we're so ignorant, we think we're all in great shape. Yeah. So you, <laughs> what we do is we uh, you think, oh, no, I'm like, what do you think your body fat percentage is? Like, I don't know, 15, but like we underestimate we're actually fatter than we, we yeah. think we are. So so women think they're fatter than they think they are. Uh, and guys think they're thinner than they actually are, yeah? But um, the bodybuilders were actually not that bad at it. They're, you're talking like, okay, it's probably because they've had it done before at some point or uh, they're, they're just more in tune with their body and they've got a better idea of what 
two and three percent look. So they're they're only a couple of percentage off. Yeah. And most people actually just estimate by the the mirror anyway. Yeah. Um, I think we sort of eventually said in the paper that it's, it's kind of interesting that so few people actually measure body fat percentages or quote body fat percentages when we ask them for them because it probably reflects the subjective nature of the sport that, yeah. do you know what, it matters what you look like 100%. rather than what some number actually says. There is value, I would say, though, in, in getting your body fat percentage tested because you can you can track it. Some people will love that sort of stuff right. and you can keep on top of things a little bit better. Other people, yeah, other people are just happy to go by the go by the mirror. So, yeah, that, that was that paper. I think in the end, just to, to recap, we suggested that higher calories means you can train harder, adhere to your diet a little bit better, limit gluconeogenesis, so muscle wastage, um, and that ultimately results in more lean body mass. And bodybuilding shows are about muscle. Yeah, more muscle you got. Right. Yeah, you're, you're into it. You're, you're winning. <laughs> and I'm yeah. interested, I, I think you also looked into their training practices as well in that paper. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what? We, we've not published that stuff. So, um, okay. So th- this is uh, this is a world premiere of uh, <laughs> of some of that information. So it's it's really important. I mean, we we designed a questionnaire. We said, okay, well, there's maybe about thirty five things. There's way more than that actually that probably contribute to mm-hmm. success. So we asked them about training. We asked them about um, we asked them about cardio. Everyone does cardio, Steve. <laughs> like, so when you bump into people, like, oh no, I don't do any cardio at all. Nah, <laughs> everyone's everyone's doing cardio, right? A lot of people are doing fasted cardio as well, yeah? Right. Loads of people are doing fasted, fasted cardio. Whether it actually makes a difference at the end of the day in terms of lean body mass, you could argue it does. Um, but from a practical setting, I can see why people are doing it. But just to give you an idea, successful people, and this is borne out, by the way, as well in the pros versus my amateur data set that mm-hmm. I'm looking at just now, because it's the same trend. Successful people do more cardio at the start of their diet halfway through their diet and at the end of the diet compared to less successful people. You pardon the the, the, the pun, but you literally have to get on your bike, yeah. Um you're talking at around about at the start of your prep, it's it can be around about 150 minutes. By the end of the prep, you're talking maybe 250 to 300. You've got some successful females doing as much as 400 minutes of cardio uh, per week. Yeah. Right. And it's it's a combination. So I know a lot of people really like sprint interval training. I love it. I think it's great. Um, but a lot of people still do steady state stuff mm-hmm. as well. And very often people are doing a combination of those sort of things um, as well. So a lot of people are doing cardio. Again, same with the data sets with the pros versus amateurs. Pros are doing more cardio than the amateurs. And this probably brings us back to the the energy sort of intake yeah. stuff as well. Having more energy allows you to probably do this sort of cardio as well at the end of the day. So afraid you're just going to have to do cardio. I mean, bodybuilding and, and physique sports are, um, are interesting. Um, but they can be, they can be kind of confusing as well because mm-hmm. there's so many levels to this sport that if we're differentiating between like, uh, some of the soft, so-called softer classes to the harder classes. And then if we're differentiating between like, say local and regional level yeah. all the way up to international level, there are layers to this. And at that sort of regional level where you may be doing a softer class, you know what? If you're in fairly good shape, you could do eight weeks to get in shape for a, a competition. You keep yourself fairly lean. You maybe don't have to actually do that much 
cardio and stuff like that. But when you get to that sort of higher level, that really high levels, you see that the the best people are actually they're having to really pound the pavements, put the put the miles in. And I guess the 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 issue is with the people at the lower levels versus people at the the higher levels is that the people at maybe the lower levels still have sometimes as much influence as the people at the higher levels in terms of their outreach and their their profiles and stuff. And it gets confusing yeah. for people trying to work out what it is you actually need to do to uh, to get in shape for competitions. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting because from a like a broader perspective, a lot of the time yeah, people sure. view this as energy balance at the end of the day. Yeah, so you yeah, can absolutely. either choose more cardio or yeah. eat less. Like it's kind of maybe they're eating more because now they're doing more cardio and that's what's yeah, allowing them yeah. to eat more. If that, that might be a preference thing, but it might actually yeah. be an inherent, actually cardio is doing something that we haven't kind of drawn out yet. Well, I mean, in terms of actual cardiovascular exercise, I mean, we, we can't forget that there is an actual fat ox there is actual fat oxidation going on i mean when we start doing our cardio we've got maybe that so-called you've got the fat burning zone and you've got the the carbohydrate burning zone but that, those first sort of 20 25 minutes of exercise you do with the cardio you're going to be burning through that carbohydrate that you're taking on extra initially before you get that switch to actually starting to burn the lipids mm-hmm. circulating through your bloodstream and on your body so there is a fat burning actually taking place there that's that's worth bearing in mind. So, but you do have to do the cardio. I mean, I I, do, I used to do a session with my students and I got them to uh, I got them to work out how much cardio you actually have to do to burn a kilo of fat. And uh, oh, do you know no. what? It's, it's <laughs> absolutely it's it's depressing because <laughs> if you work it out, like to do like uh, if you're if you just walk and i forget the numbers exactly and you do the respiratory coefficient because you can work this stuff out yeah based on the amount of oxygen that you're breathing out and the amount of co2 that you're breathing out you get an art something called an rq and an rq of 0.8 means that you're burning more lipid largely lipid and an rq of one means that you're burning just carbohydrate so you can work it out based on the rq and you can also work out how many calories based on your rate of breathing and the total oxygen collection after a minute you would potentially be burning. So you can burn like say one calorie a minute, right? Yeah. (laughs) At a walk. And if you run a little bit faster, you might go up to like two and three and four calories. But (laughs) if you do like an hour worth of, uh, of cardio at one calorie for a minute, like, it Not works much. out you might only be burning like say about I don't know 200 calories mm-hmm. and then you need about 3,500 calories all in to burn a pound of fat so it gets depressing yeah. really quick when you realize that you've got to do like three four hours of cardio and this is where they sort of to burn that pound of fat and this is where this notion that people talk about saying well cardio is not particularly good exercise is not particularly good fat burning and um, you hear people saying things like this in the, the media all the time that you can't outrun a, a bad diet. And right. there is some truth in it. Although I don't always sort of believe that you should be sort of pushing those those messages because, <laughs> quite frankly, we need to get people doing yeah. exercise. And there are inherent advantages of doing exercise beyond just, just fat burning. But, yeah, it's, it's depressing. So, yeah, that's the cardio side of things. People yeah. are doing a lot of cardio, man. They're, they're doing a lot, right? You just – got to do it. In terms of training – um. We ask people a few different questions. You say, okay, well, do you train your change your training at the start of your prep? 
compared to the change of training at the end of the prep. Um, so do you lift heavier at the start towards the end is one of the sort of key things that people often ask about in bodybuilding. Yeah. I think there's sort of a small percentage of people are maybe actually in the successful group, there's maybe a slight trend towards them lifting a little bit heavier still throughout the contest period. Okay. And that reflects the notion that whatever put the muscle on your frame in the first place, you should continue to do towards the end of the prep to keep the muscle on your frame. I'm not entirely sure that we can really tease that out. Um, right. We're going to write that up with uh, with Eric again on the larger cohort to try and see if we can really reflect anything on that. I'd have to actually really look at the data. The other interesting things is, is training splits. And I know you like training. This is your thing that you're really keen on, like different modalities of training and how you potentially do it. Um, three main types of split that people do. You've got classic bodybuilding. Everybody knows it. Yep. People call it the bro split. Uh, one body part or one and a half body parts a day, so big muscle, small muscle, uh, across the course of the week. Uh, famously, power hypertrophy training, so twice a week sort of training, so legs and back maybe on the same day, oh, sorry, upper body and lower body on the same day, but less overall sets multiple times a week. People are familiar with that. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the push-pull legs, which is your classic powerlifting, three times a week sort of tail split, yeah. Um, do you know what? There wasn't really much difference in that. The one thing I will right. say is that people that did the push-pull legs um, were more likely to be in the less successful groups. That is a much less popular training split. I think you're only mm -hmm. talking about 10% of people are doing it. That three-day style, because I think when people are prepping for contests, they want to just do more. Yeah. yeah? I mean, you could probably get away with doing well, it's not inconceivable that you could probably do a three-day split, but again, people want to do the exercise for the calorie burn and um, because they like training, and it's maybe slightly better to change your training and do more volume split across more days rather yeah. than the, the three days. I mean, there's you'll get people on your show which are probably discussing this to death really, really well. Um, in terms of the bodybuilding versus a sort of power hypertrophy, I mean, it's fairly split. Okay. Probably more people are doing the classic bodybuilding style stuff compared to the uh, power hypertrophy stuff, but it's probably about 60, 40, you know? So people are, and they're in the successful and less successful groups. So you could make an argument that, okay, well, maybe the bodybuilding split slightly better, but then still a lot of people are doing that split in the less successful group. So by the same token, you can also say, well, maybe maybe it's not as good if you if that makes at all sense. So I think that what that data kind of probably shows you there is, you know, there's a few different ways you can do it. Um, maybe just go with a preference that kind of reflects what you want to uh, want to do. I will say it looks like the females maybe train slightly different. Maybe they maybe do that twice per week style training a little okay. bit more so than the guys. And you know what? I think that probably reflects the classes. Right. Um. I mean, we all see ghettos doing lots of glute ham raises, doing specific, um, specifically focusing on glute and hamstring training and things like that. So I think that maybe reflects a little bit of uh, of that. I mean, when you look at it sensibly, that's maybe what's uh, going on there. But we'll hopefully in the next um, year and a half or whatever get around to, to writing that stuff up. I've got so much data, Steve, it's, I don't Amazing. know what to do with it. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Hopefully it doesn't gather too much dust and I can write it up in a way that makes it accessible right. for 
people like yourself to read and stuff that your um your viewers can can come across as well because I, I should maybe start doing more videos actually because I, I just like, I spend too much time writing this sort of stuff and trying to actually do this and and doing the training that actually getting my stuff out there is is, is a big challenge for me so that all all makes sense we we spent the whole time really talking about that one one paper and we've not even really gotten yeah we might the, have to bring you on again stuff. for the for oh, the I'd other love one that, great. <laughs> um because i yeah i don't want to skip over it or anything i definitely yeah. think we could dig into the the woods with that and yeah i, I mean yeah. i can't wait for the stuff you're doing with yeah. eric in terms of yeah. hearing more about potentially like okay mm. what volumes are people doing across the week kind yeah. of what sort of intensities are people training at yeah. kind of what's their thoughts i don't know if you're looking at like failure training versus kind of like keeping yeah, you know reserve. What? these are great ideas these are really really good ideas it's very difficult what we've got to kind of try and do is sort of think well what can we actually measure yeah um i mean to do that sort of stuff i can see i can see how you would do it but it's probably more labor intensive than what we could actually do yeah. again these are these all sound like amazing ideas for uh for honor students and master students to go on and, and potentially uh do these sort of projects so if there's anyone out there that wants to do a project <laughs> that i could potentially come up with uh, something for you to to look into then yeah get, get in touch um so steve will probably be, be able to uh, to give you some details okay so a few funny things right because it's always okay. good to end on this sort of stuff rather than going into uh and all the highbrow heavy stuff we'll be talking about. So bodybuilders are crazy. This is why we yeah. love studying them. Yeah. They do absolutely mental stuff, right? So uh, what do you think is the most amount of cans of Pepsi Max someone probably has a day in contest prep? Oh, wow. Top end. I think I heard you say this on Danny's podcast yeah. when I first listened to it. It was something like two and a half litres. I think it was even more than that probably. Oh, yeah, it was, yeah. So I think six cans of Pepsi Max a day was one particular quote, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, how acidic would your stomach be? God, I don't know if I could that afford is, six cans of Pepsi. You'd I have think to go to I capped myself at three. That's like, was my limit? Was a three I mean, I'm joking about this, but a lot of people use artificial sweeteners yeah. and, and do that sort of stuff for the contest prep. I think it's to help with sugar cravings. I think there was a, was one particular person uh, mentioned they were doing about four liters of either Pepsi Max and or seven up diet a day i mean <laughs> fucking hell that's <laughs> a lot <laughs> I, mean, I don't buy into this sort of stuff like okay you shouldn't be having artificial right. sweeteners in your diet because it's bad for you but i mean at that level for right. a long time it's a lot <laughs> what's going on there other particularly funny things i thought um not funny actually probably a bit <laughs> A bit not great uh, dieting behavior was uh, people were having spoonfuls of uh, stevia a day. Right. Just like getting it down, yeah. Got to get that stevia in you, man. Gosh. <laughs> but I mean, this this particular bodybuilder, they did mention that um, it helped some. Uh, they, they they noticed that it was actually starting to affect the weight they were looking. Right. Yeah. So like, so they they reflected on that. I thought, you know what, this is this is not no, a pretty good idea. Alcohol is always a good one as well, right? Okay. Whether yeah. or not alcohol, I mean, nobody does it, right? Everyone kind of does it uh, pre-contest for that diuretic effect, yeah. And I've been at bodybuilding contests where um, I've seen people like drink a bottle of brandy, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there was one guy, um, 
George, George Kerr, he'll not make me telling this story. He's called, get called the Razor. Pished. Just pished <laughs> as fuck. He's going to do the body punk cuts. He used to do a headstand every year, right? On stage. This was his thing, right? He'd be waiting on the Razor headstand. One, and he's in, he's in the master's class, like over 50s, over nice. 60s. Over 50s, I think, George, sorry. Um, and like those guys always do great routines. They always try to like outdo each other. Yep. He came on one year with like a walker, pretend he's like an old guy. <laughs> drunk his bottle of brandy he's like doing a headstand on top of this walker and you're like oh god he's gonna die <laughs> <laughs> so that that's that's quite amusing uh, and then the other one probably still a bit concerning really like the stevia uh right. caffeine intake yeah yep. okay so on average around about 350 megs is what your guys are doing about 250 megs is what your females are doing okay some people if you quantify that, are going up to around about nine megs per kilo of body weight, right. um, which is enough to start becoming ergolytic. And by ergolytic, I mean it's got a performance decreasing effect. Right. Never mind all the other side effects you get about jittering and stuff like that. But you've got some mad bastards sort of <laughs> going up to about a thousand megs of caffeine Whoa. a day. Yeah. So if you're having like, say, six cans of Pepsi Max a day, right? 32 megs of caffeine in every sort yeah. of can of Pepsi Max, right? But if you do two Monster Energy drinks a day or two rock stars a day, whatever your energy drink choice is a day, plus a pre-workout, yeah, plus a fat burner, plus a couple of green teas or coffees or something like that, uh, and then you take an hour fat burner in the morning or you're having espressos. I mean, this all sounds like I'm maybe exaggerating it, but you've been on contest prep, so you know what it's like, and you've you know how many black coffees and things like people will have? I mean, black coffee and chewing gums usually, yeah. those are the go-to things for a lot of people. Then you can get up there with those really high amounts. And I don't think some people actually realize, like once they're taking their intro workouts and all these sort of things, how much yeah. caffeine you're actually probably having. And the uh, EFSA, which is the European Food Safety Authority, they reckon you can get away with about 450 megs a day as the same sort of upper limit, right? Athletic, that's not scale for body size, but I mean, a thousand mix. Yeah, that's a lot. How do you sleep at night? <laughs> <laughs> they can't be. <laughs> what's, what's, yeah, no, you can't be. Like, I'd be wired to the moon quite literally. So there's a there's a few concerning or, uh, or funny things about uh, natural bodybuilding competitions without even going into the world of non-natural bodybuilding where people do yeah. all sorts of nefarious and... and uh, and funny practices. Um, do you know what? Here's one last funny one if you want to keep this one in here as well. This this is quite amusing. Maybe this belongs in the peak week one. But I remember being out in the States once and, uh, and asking some pe competitors about how they travel, yeah? And they're telling me about flights. I said, okay, well, I'll not mention this female's name. Um, but I was saying, okay, well, so you fly, yeah? Yeah, so you're flying. So do you, do you have issues with water retention and stuff like that? They're like, yeah, yeah. So, so what I do is I, I measure all the water that I excrete on the flight and then I replace all the water afterwards. And then it, it dawned on me. I was like, so to do that, you'd have to measure your own piss. And she's like, yeah. And I was like, wow. You know what? I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> I'm feeling out. <laughs> so odd. <laughs> there are people listening to this though. I know. Who can relate? <laughs> Probably doing that. Like, you know what? Just weigh yourself, right? And weigh the amount of water you're drinking, right? Just do that. Don't go and weigh your pets, right? <laughs> don't, don't do it.
<laughs> okay, so that. we've got a bit crude here at the end here, but it's still, I think, slightly amusing just to end on these sort of uh, these funny things. Is that all good for you then, Steve? Are you happy with that? No, yeah, brilliant. I think Great. there's some cool. really cool things that you can draw out where we are seeing yeah. kind of the researchers saying this and people at the top are actually yeah. following in line with it, which is really interesting. Yeah, sure. So mm-hmm. I think that's brilliant. And I think you've given some interest, especially at the end yeah. there, towards peak week, which I think <laughs> yeah. I'd love to dig into that cool. at some point with you because bodybuilders love peak week it's something that's super kind of mysterious at the same time as in many ways it's not but i think it'll be great to get your insight on it because you've done it yourself many a time plus you've seen what other people are doing which i think is just gonna be super interesting to kind of listen into um but i want to make sure before i kind of cut off yeah where if people want to learn more about kind of i know you've got your youtube channel you've got your instagram yeah, sure. where are you putting out kind of your content so if people want to reach out or see more yeah of yeah stuff. absolutely so i'm gonna i'm, I'm sh- all your guests do this so i'm gonna put some a few shameless plugs on it uh, on my behalf so people can get in touch and they can um they can uh, they can see the content that I'm producing. So a few different places. So you can find me on ResearchGate if you actually want to go and find some of the scientific papers that I'm uh, working on just now. So you'll find stuff on there. Um, on Citrulline Mali, I've done a bit of stuff on that. Bodybuilding stuff. You can go and read some of the stuff I've done on the gut microbiota as well if you want to read that sort of stuff. You can find me on Facebook. So I've got a Facebook page, Andrew Chappelle Natural Bodybuilding. I post some things on there. Uh, Instagram. So... Um, I'm fueled by Scott's oats on there. That's uh, that's a nod to my PhD where I studied oats and barley. Um, and then the the other thing that I'm just uh, I'm in the process of doing just now. And uh, Steve, we'd love to have you on uh, as a guest on this as well. We're going to uh, I'm launching something with my partner Steph Noble, who's a also a DFAC pro as well. I didn't realise she was uh, your partner. I don't. Well, 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 I've seen go. Steph like amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Fabulous, uh, fabulous bodybuilder. She's she's absolutely fantastic. So world level, second 2017. Really proud of her. She looks fantastic. Yeah, great, great insights uh, from her. Um, follow her as well, Steph Noble on um, Instagram. You'll be able to find her. But we're launching something called Pro Prep. So uh, we've put together a series of videos. This is going to be launching in the next uh, in the next week. You should be able to find this on YouTube as well. Amazing. You'll find this on Instagram. You'll find it on facebook as well pro prep and we're going to document our contest preparation from the perspective of a pro natural male bodybuilder and a pro female natural bodybuilder as well and what we do to get in shape for bodybuilding contests so training dieting and it's kind of like a no holds bar just just an insight because i don't think it's ever been done like two pros of our level actually okay this is how you do it and this is sort of like a a prelude to the fact that we're now going to open up our service, our own services to the wider population in terms of what we do with um, our posing coaching and our nutritional consultations and uh, and things like that. So definitely check that out there. Cool. And like I say, we're going to have Q and A's and things like that on there, guests as well. And we'd love to have you on just to talk about nutritional stuff as well. So hopefully we'll get you on there at uh, some time. So that's everything. Hopefully I've not uh, missed anything out there. I'm sure. Uh, Steph will let me know later if I have. He'll kick my ass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll make sure it's all linked below. That sure. sounds, Great. I mean, by the time this comes out, we're recording a bit ahead of time. So that will all be live sure. by the time this comes out. I'll Great. make sure yeah. it, it's linked Absolutely. below. Um, I'd be honored to be a guest on there. It sounds amazing. Oh, yeah, sure. I think the more pros and the more kind of high level people yeah. that can share their experience towards stage, yeah. like it's just gold dust for us, like other competitors looking in. So. Sure. 
people listening in will love that they'll lap it up so you'll get lots cool. of eyes on you so yeah thank you very much andrew and i want to yeah, thank everyone thank for listening you. in oh great great cool uh, hopefully uh, everyone enjoyed my insights and uh and my daft stories if uh, if people like them i've got some more i can certainly give you in the, uh, <laughs> the next one as well thanks for having me steve okay brilliant cheers very much okay cheers